much wanted to do intensive practice. Um, so um, I was very fortunate to be supported by my community. And uh, actually, I, I have a family. I had a son. So he was, I want to mention that he was part of my retreat, um, that he would come up and sleep. I had a little bed for him. And we do little nature walks um, and spend a lot of really quality time. And he really loved it that I was in retreat because he said, Mom, I always know where you are. <laughs> I never went anywhere. So it was a very stabilizing thing for him. For him, I don't know if every child would feel that way, but it worked out for us. Um, so uh, I, had, I have a small cabin. Uh, it's very high up. It's like, I don't know, 9,500 feet or something up in the mountains overlooking a very vast, beautiful valley. Um, And, you know, when you first go into retreat, uh, what I notice, at least for myself, is that the mind is um, comfortable with certain experiences and not comfortable with other experiences. So, for example, um, I would sit and maybe I would be open to maybe 10% of my experience. The other experience was kind of rough and unwanted. Like I had such strong preferences, you know, about what I wanted to uh, experience. Um, And I noticed that like just so much phenomena comes up, just so much experience every day. By the end of the day, you think, gosh, could I possibly have any other kind of experience? Because you feel bliss and you feel agitated and you feel bored and you feel all these different experiences. Um... But every day you wake up and you have new experiences. <laughs> it's really fascinating. And then you're looking outside at what seems to be the same scene. I have a big window overlooking the valley and I have some pine, some juniper pines kind of in front of my window. And actually it's so interesting because you start to get a little fascinated. Like it starts to look fresh and different. Like the pine cones actually change. And you start to learn about it. You start to learn, you know, where, where you start to see what, where the sun rises and where, when the moon rises. You know the cycles of the moon. Uh, you sit on your porch and there's lots, of, I had a lot of ants, red ants. And I just become, when it's kind of lonely sometimes. And all of a sudden you start to really appreciate these like little creatures, you know. And you start to feel very connected to this very simple, natural, uncontrived, um, experience out, you know, that you, that you encounter. And I remember it was very interesting because sometimes I'd feel very lonely, you know, separate. And I noticed that um, I always was facing north. Like I'd scoot my cushion facing north because the northern part of the valley had these snow mountains. Um, and there, it was very comforting, like it was very friendly. Whereas in the south, it was kind of foggy and lonely. Um, so I'd always be kind of shifting somehow to the north. And I noticed that after a while I started to edge my way over to the south a little bit um, and really like allowing more experience in. You know, what was lonely, what maybe was a little unwanted, what was a little scarier. And so finally, one day I noticed that I was looking fully at the southern side of the valley and the the kind of loneliness opened up and I experienced the deep, deep connection to, I don't know what it was, everything. Like that feeling of loneliness just shifted, you know, and I felt, I think I never felt as connected 
alone, though, in my cabin, and yet never more connected. So it's interesting to see how maybe you just want to experience 10% of your mind, but as you relax and experiences arise, it's like, how long, if you're in a retreat for that long, if you're going to fight it, (laughs) if you're only wanting to experience 10% of your mind, you're so intimidated by your experience, you'll go crazy, And I think. So, you know, after a while, it just starts to, you start to soften, and you have much more, a bigger ability to encompass your own life and your own experience. And um, I think that's what happens. And and, and nature was such a huge part of that Mm -hmm. for me. As you're talking, I'm thinking of how when we are in nature, we get just a little piece of that, of what you're saying, because when we're outside, like if we do a retreat there or even we go for a walk, it's like we move out of where we can control. Mm. And it's so obvious that we can't just turn the thermostat up and, or turn it down or, you know, go get a drink of water just from the fountain. And all of a sudden, all these ideas we have about how things should be, yeah. we can see that there's like nothing to bump up against, you know? There, there is nobody who's going to make it happen. And so they're taking away that, puts us right up there against the edge of those wishes and also invites this kind of deep acceptance of this is the way it is. And I just love, I, you know, on these wilderness retreats I leave, I, I can think of one day on a canoe retreat. Oh my God, there was just, we were going down the river and this huge storm kind of started up and it was like we couldn't. Um, there was no way we were going down river and we pulled over and you know I had to actually get the canoes and turn them on their sides because the wind was blowing and uh, the other the cook and guide and myself were like trying to set up tarps and I got so worried about everybody on the retreat and they were all cuddled up sort of up in the bushes trying to hide from this torrential rain and you know, I have sometimes, we all have this, these ideas about, you know, our fragility that we, we get kind of so catered to in our, in our built environment. And the thing that I always get amazed about is when we can't make it better, when make it better in some sort of artificial way. I'm busy running around trying to see if we can put up a tarp, if I can take care of everybody. And afterward, I realized... Everybody's fine. They're completely <laughs> fine. And it's funny how it's something I keep learning again and again. Every time something dramatic happens on a retreat, and I go, is everybody going to be okay? You know, are we, are we going to be? And everybody shows me again and again our incredible capacity to be with what is when this sense that we have to choose and make it other is taken away, then this capacity we have shines through. It's a really beautiful um, thing to know and feel in ourselves and see in each other. So I can feel the flavor in that. Yeah, it's a wonderful metaphor because it's the same, yeah, it's like you're saying it's the same thing with our mind. It's like we, we have so much preference. You know, but actually, this ability to include more is the freeing part. Yeah. 
And so it happens, as you're describing, in the outer elements, mm-hmm. too. It's like inner, outer. It's hard to say. Are those two things separate? Same, same. <laughs> <laughs> not one, not two. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So when, so recently you started doing the retreats in nature. What, what, was it because of this experience, in your experience, or something else? What's pulling you in to offering it now? Besides the fact the Buddha practiced under a tree, he was enlightened under a tree, he yeah. died under a tree, <laughs> all his monastics, all the Tibetan yogis practiced outside. Yeah. Um, other than that. Other than that. <laughs> well, I have to confess, it, it, I didn't initiate this particular thing that I'm doing now. This mm-hmm. was, uh, what pulled me in was Anam Tupton Rinpoche, who is, maybe you, many of you know him, but he's a, a wonderful Tibetan teacher who lives in the East Bay. Um, and he's a friend of mine, and we have been teaching at retreats. One of that's how I met you um, in Idaho um, some years ago. So uh, we, you know, my kind of thing, my passion is teaching about teaching on the emptiness teachings and the teachings of dependent arising or pratityat samudpada, the, the wisdom aspect that the Buddha taught. So because I have this great interest in emptiness and, and uh, interdependence or dependent arising, uh, Anam Tupton Rinpoche wanted to teach on the Chud practice. Chud is a, is a particular lineage, um, practice lineage that comes from Tibet and was taught by a wonderful female yogini, uh, Machi Glabdran in Tibet around the 12th century. And it's an interesting lineage. First of all, it's one of the only matriarchal lineages that there there is. And it's also the only lineage where the Buddha Dharma went from Tibet to India, and not from India to Tibet. And so it's very unique in its way. And it's a lineage that requires practicing outside. And sometimes it's practiced in edgy places. That's kind of the point, actually. So it doesn't necessarily mean scary places, although often it was practiced in like charnel grounds and graveyards. And the the kind of idea around it is to lean in a little bit into your the things that you try to avoid. So, you know, like I was speaking, like we only want to have certain kinds of experiences. But if we have that kind of preference, then we're always kind of keeping ourselves at bay. We're always having to reject certain things and grasp at other things, which is an interesting, um, which is really what we have to look at as practitioners is like, you know, what is this that's, why do we struggle so much with our experience? You know, why can't we include more experience in the realm of our awareness, you know, in a natural kind of way? Um, Anyways, she, just to give you an idea of Machi's thinking, she has these five slogans that I teach often. Uh, Actually, I'll be teaching them next weekend at at Anam Tupta Rinpoche Center. But she says, um, expose your hidden faults. Approach the things that repulse you. Those who you think you cannot help, help them. If you're attached to something, let it go and go to scary places. <laughs> That's my cheek in a nutshell. She was really wild. And she was a mother and a householder and really an extraordinary practitioner. So 
and I don't want to, you know, I could go on. I have to refrain myself because she's so extraordinary. But anyways, so I, I said okay to the chib practice because I have had that transmission from my teacher, um, and it's part of our lineage. And so uh, we talked about where to do this this retreat, and uh, Rimche said, let's do it at Canyon de Chez in Arizona, which is a Navajo country um, place, Canyon. It's also a matriarchal place. Hmm. The Navajos are a matriarchal culture, and they say there was a time in that canyon there were no men. All the men got kicked out. I'm not exactly sure why. I couldn't, couldn't get out of them why that was. But there's a lot of amazing men there now. I can say that. So uh, we, we do this once a year. And um, it's been an extraordinary experience for me. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. Let's see. What should I say? So wait, I might have some questions for you. Okay. <laughs> okay. I, I just, in some ways, you've, in, you've, in such a concise way, you've already um, said so much in such a, like, centralized way but I'd just like to hear more of your experiences of being out in nature and and you know why is it so different yeah what the, you know I often think about this when we're out there and it's like the practice sometimes um, looks similar unlike doing a specific practice. Well, there are some spe- very specific practices we do. I shouldn't, uh, maybe I should say something about that. But, um, you know, when we're there and these, all the ways in our daily lives, the roles and the ways we show up and the sense of identity and me that we have, there's a way when we're in the natural world, we're not getting um, that... Uh, push back from the world to have a, an identity, to be a me that interacts. And so there's a way that the sense of I, this identification, falls away almost naturally. And I'm going to guess, as I look out here, that many of you just naturally have this experience. Like you go out and you go for a walk. And there's some sort of Ah, like an out-breath that happens, that you don't have to do something now. That's sort of what I was pointing to in that guided meditation, that we don't have to show up in some way. And, you know, I think it's reflected all around us, the natural, um, that we can be responsive. We can be our spontaneous, alive selves without rigid, rigidifying, sort of another aspect yeah. of what you're talking about. Because we can look at nature and it's like constantly adjusting. And none of it's a problem. We don't look at some tree and go, oh, that branch is going the wrong direction. It's like, that branch went that way because that's where the light was. Mm-hmm. You know? And there's this place I teach in... Uh, paradise I kid you not the town of paradise in Utah out in a camp and there's a little tiny creek that goes along and there's this great big willow tree and this huge willow tree at some time in the distant past fell over and 
it leans way out. And then because it fell over, it all started, you know, all these branches started sprouting up. So it's this big bushy tree that is like almost completely horizontal. And we sit And when I practice and lead that retreat, we sit under this huge sideways tree. And I love that because it's like saying, look, there's nothing wrong with this tree. It just responded to the conditions it was offered. And it's like all of us too, when we see how everything's responding to everything else, you know, all our ideas that we should somehow be different or we shouldn't have this or we should have that drops away. It's like each of us is this amazing natural response to all the conditions we've had. Mm -hmm. Whether our body is a natural response to genetics and environment, our mind, the natural response to, you know, the conditions under which we grew up. It's like we, it's not like we have um, somehow erred by being who we are. Mm -hmm. And this ties right in to your... Um, to the dependent arising, that we're all in this endless series of conditionality, that everything, we're in a whole matrix. It's like we are ecological system, you know? No one of us is somehow outside the ecological system. Our thoughts are the result of the ecological system, that we're in of culture and family and friends and in the natural world it's so obvious to us and then we come into our separate everyday life and we lose contact with Mm -hmm. the depth of that truth and that leads me to say I'd love to hear you say more about um, because I've learned, I've learned so much from Elizabeth about dependent arising. And I just would love to hear you give some of your, yeah. share some of oh, your of passion for that. <laughs> yeah, I do have a lot of passion for that, for sure. <laughs> I, and I'm, I'm happy to do that. And I have my sticks right here. That's good. But <laughs> she, she takes her sticks <laughs> with my them. teaching tools. Teaching and these tool. are for nature, you know? Yeah. See? But first, I just want to say, like, I feel so much your passion for mm. for being in nature and your your deep appreciation. And I was just hearing you say, you know, the thing about nature it's, is it's so uncontrived and unselfconscious. And I often, you know, look at myself, or you know, I know the human being a human is a different. Is that you feel the difference of when you go out in nature, sometimes like you say, you go out and you just take a deep breath and you just feel connected. But oftentimes there's something about being human that doesn't seem natural to us, I feel. That is, you sit with your mind and you don't know how to digest your experience. It's like, you know, when you look at a, a bear in nature, for example, because we do have a lot of bears where I live, and I know you encountered a bear, you were telling me, but they're so juicy, like they have so much chi, and what's gorgeous about them is just they are natural. They're not struggling with like what you were saying, I'm good, I'm bad, oh, I'm, I don't look, I'm having a bad hair day, or I'm not attractive, or, you know, there's some, it's, 
it's so beautiful to witness. Uh, and it, for me, even in particular, animals out in nature, they're so... The word, I, I can only think of the word juicy for, for some reason right now. But, um, and so in one way, it reflects your, your kind of neurotic mind too so strongly um, that's a part of it too isn't it, it is. I'm, I'm sure you must witness that also because you're working with people yeah. going into nature yeah. well um, and it's so ob- like you're saying it's so obvious yeah. that it's our mind that, yeah. that our body is nature that yeah. we are part of it and it's so obvious that it's our mind that is separating us yeah. and then, though, we can also make that next move when we are with it long enough and realize even our mind is nature. Our mind is nature. Mind yeah, is nature. Definitely. Well, that would be a good lead into the sticks, okay, too. Okay, you go. Because, okay, so the sticks are going to... Let me explain to you about these. And I have the most amazing sticks today. Like, one thing I like about my stick practice is that everywhere I go, the sticks are different. And Gretchen and my friend Tina got these on the beach, right, today? Look at this one has a pine cone connected to it. Is that not beautiful? Just, it makes you think anything is possible. You know, when you look at the natural world, doesn't it? And um, anyways, I, you know, in terms of the mind, the grasping and rejecting and rejecting and the good and the bad and the whole drama, you know, that arises in the mind, I don't know, it's just kind of the confusion of being human, which has its own kind of uh, uh, tender aspect, I think, to it, and we can appreciate it. Um, you know, I, I realize, what you realize, although nature has a way of reflecting something really positive about ourselves and our neurosis. You know, if your mind, if you're not working with your mind, you know, you could be looking at nature or a wall. You're going to be suffering in the same way. Or if your mind is free and open, you could be looking at a wall or out your window at this beautiful scenery and you can be completely free. So, you know, I just want to put nature now in a bigger context because there's the nature as opposed to unnatural or man-made or living in a city or what have you. And then there's the nature of everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I want to talk now about the nature of everything. So this could be a way to use the sticks. And so. it's so perfect. I'm just keep going with the sticks, but I just want to say okay. that nature, when we say nature, it's so, I'm so glad you brought up that it's like we start with it in the outside, yeah. but then we have to realize yeah. this building is nature. Yeah. You know, our minds are nature. Yeah. It all is included. Yeah. yeah. Especially like you'll take your people out on a retreat and they'll just be so open and then they have to come back to the city and they might shut down. So, oh, I'm sure that never happened. Yeah, <laughs> not to me. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's challenging in that way. So how do we how do we see nature? Like, wh- what do we mean by nature? So, um, this you know what I'm about to illustrate here um, is a way of pointing out the way the Buddha described the nature in the biggest sense of the word. Um, so when the Buddha, at the dawn of his awakening, the Buddha said a very curious thing. Um, he said, this being, B-E-I-N-G, this being, that becomes, 
from the arising of this, that arises. This not being, that becomes not. From the cessation of this, that ceases. Now, I know it sounds cryptic, so, but I'll clear it up in a minute, <laughs> I hope. Um, what basically he's saying is everything is leaning against each other. Everything arises and expresses itself and falls away due to causes and conditions. So that's easy to understand. Do you see, kind of see how it is? You know, we're all here gathered in this room and we're all able to have a conversation and yet we're all having completely different experiences, I am sure. Because we're hearing things differently based upon our backgrounds and who we are and maybe our constitutions and we're, things are changing moment to moment based on causes and conditions. So when the Buddha says, you know, this being, that becomes, you could say he's also relating to the Four Noble Truths. Like if the causes and conditions for suffering is there, suffering will arise. You know, if they cease, suffering will cease. So we can work in the nature of relationship to change um, how we perceive and understand things through wisdom and meditation and so forth. So he, this is a principle called pratityat samudpada, which is a Sanskrit word. But what it's often translated is, as is, dependent arising. Or I just, actually, I was just with Joanna Macy today. She calls it mutual causality. And, and this and is... to translate just, a, you know, paticca samapada is the Pali, and we often yeah. translate it as dependent origination. Yeah. So just for those of oh, you familiar you. with it. Yeah. yeah, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, I, I tend to go with the Sanskrit site. I don't know the Pali so well, but the Pali is like the original thing. So, um, so... What, how you might talk about this could be very simple. You could say, it all depends. <laughs> or, everything leans. Let me demonstrate this to you because it really goes very deep. So, would you, would you say this is a long stick or a short stick? Just blurt it out. <laughs> yeah, she already knows. <laughs> long or short. What, so, anymore? I couldn't hear so, so many. Short. It's a what? A foot? Short. Oh, it's a cricket stick. No, I'm asking about length. So medium, short, it all depends. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Good. Okay. And you, you know, just think of the length here. I know the pine cone is distracting. So now when I hold up this stick next to this stick, what happens if I ask you the same question? Is this a long stick or a short stick? Yeah, it's longer in relationship to this stick. Now if I hold up this stick, if I can, what happens to this stick? Because it's short, tiny. It becomes shorter in relation to this stick. So let me ask you another question. Does the length of this stick exist in the stick? Think about it for a minute. It does? It exists in the stick. So if it's short in relation to this and long in relation to this, then how can you, how can you say 
that it exists in the stick. Because it depends. You got it. It depends on its relationship to other things. That's the point. You got it. It depends on its relationship to other things. For me, personally, this is a very radical idea. It means, because we walk around the, we walk through the world thinking we know. To me, what this means is you can't be right. Think if every, we really understood this, how it would change the world. <laughs> There's a lot of people who feel they're right. We all feel we're right. We even feel right when we sit in meditation and something comes up and we feel we have to reject it because we know what it is. You hear what I'm saying, kind of? This is a very profound thing. This, the whole purpose of this exercise is to poke a hole in your delusion, your confusion. That's why they're sticks. <laughs> so, this, so what this tells us is, is something this way or that way? Well, it all depends upon the context. So if I were to ask you, what is the utility of this stick? Well, what could, it be, what could be the utility of this t- stick? To make a fire. A walking stick. To stir. Yep. Somebody said the other day took one of our sticks and stirred a soup with that. So yeah, you could stir. A little boy might see it as a sword. A bug might burrow into it. Right? I'm using it for Mahayana pointing out instructions. <laughs> so let me ask you one more question. Does the fact that the length of the stick not exists in the stick mean that the stick loses its utility or meaning or like it becomes useless? No. So would you say length, knowing measurement and length is important in our world? I would say it's very important. I've been thinking about this because I've been flying around on an airplane. So let's use this example. So in order to get to the airport, you have to have a car and you have to know the mileage to the airport and you have to know how much gas to put in it and you have to check your watch to see how long it's going to take you so you won't miss your flight because time is a measurement of, you know, minutes and hours are measurement of time and experience, right? So we use measurement a lot. Then you get into the airplane, which was engineered based on measurement, and again, fueled uh, with gallons of whatever it's fueled with. And, you know, then the, the pilot has to, however he got there, probably has a lot to do with how he measures things. And then, you know, f- take off at a certain point on the runway and fly up and then get to a certain altitude, which is based on measurement. If you were to get to the des- near the destination and say, okay, when should I land? And the guy in the control tower says, well... I'm not sure, <laughs> you know. We would never, we'd have a problem. Measurement is powerful, powerful uh, agreement we have. It's not a truth, but it's an agreement we have. And so there's this highly functioning world of relationship, despite the fact that there's no objective characteristics in anything. Is that interesting? Yeah, this is interesting to me. This is really interesting. I'm so obsessed with this. I've been studying, you know, the text with my teacher about this principle, Pratitya Samudpada, by the way. Have you heard the word emptiness in Buddhism? 
The fact that this stick is empty of characteristics, does that make sense? You get emptiness. The fact that everything depends, that's talking about the relative truth of appearance. So the next time when you read the Heart Sutra and they say form is emptiness, emptiness is form, the emptiness is just because there's no intrinsic truth in the stick. It still has this functioning quality. You can't separate those two things. So emptiness and dependent arising, or pratichit samapada, or in Pali... Pratichit samapada. Oh, it sounds... It's just a little bit... A little, yeah, the spelling is different. That's an understanding of that, that aspect. This is the wisdom aspect of the teaching. And I feel it's a really, really important aspect of understanding our nature. Because when we sit to practice, whatever arises, arises due to causes and conditions. And it, it expresses itself and it, you know, fades and changes. So, you know, these things that, we, that arise in our experience, it seems so, like, singular and true. Like, we look at another person and we think, they are, you know, nasty we singularize them. But in fact, no, there's no such thing as a singular thing. So in the tradition that I practice, we look for a, we look in and see if we can find a singular thing, and we never find it. But we look anyway. I call it the practice of looking and not finding. And then we look for a permanent thing. We can never find a permanent thing. And then we look for an independent or autonomous thing. And we can never find that either. For example, if you look for an autonomous self, you can't find one because, for example, in relationship to your child, you're a mother or a father, you know, or you're a son or daughter in relationship to your parents. And when you go to a dentist, you're a patient. And when you, you know, are sitting and giving a teaching or listening to a teaching, you know, you're a student or a teacher, it all depends on the context. And so we, the world... You know, when I think of the great teachers of, of my lineage and of the Buddha and, and, and of all these great lineages that we practice, really the mind of awe and openness, the mind that understands, that, that doesn't close down around the truth of an object, that's the mind of, um, that's the practice mind. The practice mind, and um, anyway, I know I'm, I'm. You know, you asked me this question. <laughs> Thank you, Susie, because I sh- I was supposed to be talking about my book tonight, but Susie and I were kind of fired up about nature, so I thought I can talk about nature in the biggest sense of the word at the end, and explain to you my book, The Logic of Faith, is about Pratichya Samadpada, and the reason I call it the logic of faith is that, that you know, this is a logic in a way that I been explaining to you is very traditional. But the faith part is that if you live in a world where everything leans, which means it all depends, you can't know anything in a determinate way. You can't really grasp and think you're right about anything. And so in a world in which everything leans, we really have no choice but to faith. And I'm interested in faith in the context of the human condition. I'm not looking at faith as faith as a religion. Because if you look in the dictionary, faith means a million things. Dogma, doctrine, I don't know, uh, religion. But it also can mean spirituality and conviction and confidence. So, you know, we look at a word and we think we know what it means. But words are also not definitive structures. They change 
over time and they mean different things in different contexts. Again, the meaning all depends, like all phenomena. So, you know, I'm trying to push this in at the last minute. (laughs) Trying to get my little, you know, explanation in. But also, you know, really wanting to share this stick thing with you because really for me, this whole... This whole wisdom aspect is the most important thing, and it really fires me up more than anything else, really. So I wanted to share that with you um, here. So thank you for asking me, Susie. <laughs> oh, we still have more time. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. <laughs> what should well, we talk about now? Well, here, I'll, here, hand me a stick. Okay, wonderful. We'll do, we'll which, do an added... Which one? The one that is medium and compared to the... Doesn't matter. <laughs> so there's another thing embedded in what you're saying, but you didn't quite fully say it, so I'm going to add yeah, a little. Yeah, please. Which is to recognize that we call it a stick, but does this stick call itself a stick? And... and it's a stick because we think it, we call it a stick, but it, it was not very long ago a living being, a branch. And sometime before that, it was earth and water. And you're carrying it around as a stick right now, but pretty soon it's going to be food, as you mentioned, yeah. to some bug. And then it's going to be soil and compost and nourishment to something else. And so this idea when we name something a stick, just as you're pointing to, we're pulling it out of this of a bigger context mm-hmm. as if somehow it's a stick. Yeah. It's not. It's like <laughs> it's it's the it's just a process unfolding in a whole world. And this points to the fact that our minds and our language talk in terms of nouns. I look out there and I see chairs and people and a rug. And this is a misconception, a kind of a, a delusion of words because everything is in process. If we were, if our language was a little more accurate, it would be naming everything in verbs. I'm not a Susie. I'm not the same as I was one minute ago. I'm a Susie-ing happening. (laughs) You know? Just like you are. Nice. And so to recognize that every time we name something, we, we freeze it in our mind. It's not frozen at all. But our minds freeze in the way you're talking about. And in that freezing, and we freeze people. When we, somebody we know, and we give them this name, and they walk in the door, we've frozen them in some idea of them that we developed from a few little dots. We don't even know what's happening inside our own minds, inside us. How could we possibly limit somebody by some name we give them? And, you know, think of when somebody you know walks in the door and you think you know them. And you've got this name for them. And how completely deluded that is. And when we recognize that in ourselves and others, how freeing it is. I don't have to be that person that you named me yesterday because there's no way I could be. 
And the person who walks in the door is a complete adventure that you don't know about. So this is part of the freshness that you're speaking to as we, you know, as we open up to the possibility of how uh, the, the awe of how moving and alive and changing and dynamic mm-hmm. everything is. The nouns just like put such a lid on everything in such a unfortunate way. And, you know, in all of this, to go back to where we were, all of this seems so evident in nature, right? It's obvious. And we forget it somehow when we come inside. But it's absolutely the same here yeah. as it is outside. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I appreciate, you know, you taking that further too. It's a be- that's a beautiful analogy. And it's interesting because this thing with language, I, you know, I love language so much. So I, I totally agree with what you're saying. But I also think, like, it's not the language that's the problem. It's the reification. Yeah. Reification means you singularize something. Like, language is just an illusion, and it's playful, and it's efficient and functional. And, mm-hmm. you know, we need language. Yeah. Language is this gore. I mean, I love language. It's gorgeous, you know, but it's a, it's a magical illusion. It's thinking you're right. And thinking it's true, that the thing is the same as what you think it is. So I like what you're saying about verbing. Because if you see language as just a, a way to participate in life together and communicate, it's fabulous. But once you decide that you know what something is, it's a problematic. And I always say, like, the greatest respect you could have for anyone is not to decide you know who they are. Because... Well, you know yourself that you're 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 part of the great nature of infinite contingency, <laughs> and that's a, you can't even really say who you are because you're contingent, and that's a beautiful, I think, way to you know we say in this tradition, you know, we look for a self we can't find a singular, permanent, or independent self. We can find a functioning self, but you can't really say who you are. And so what I always think is, well, if I'm part of the great nature of infinite contingency, it means I only ever really see a little piece of things. Of course, I can read patterns and, um, you know, I'm, I, can, I, I have perception, I have insight and, you know, I see myself in relationship, but, you know, I'm not, I'm never in total command and I only ever see a, a little piece of things. And yet, because everything is leaning everything I do matters. Because if, you're, if everything is leaning, if everything is dependent, then everything you do has reverberating effects. Everything matters. So you can't really fall into eternalism or nihilism this way. You know, you can't hold on to anything, but you can't say nothing matters and fall into nihilism or depression or, think, you know, just be passive. Because it's such a deep responsibility to understand that you're part of this infinite system of contingency or dependent origination or dependent rising, mutual causality. So that's, I always feel that's very important. And you know, that's the middle way. That's what the Buddha was teaching. Not eternalism, Mm -hmm. not the nihilism, not that we're separate and outside the system, but not that we're all the same. You know, he had, 
he, he would not answer that question of is there a self or is there not a self? He wouldn't answer it because he was pointing to the fact everything's leaning, everything depends. So it, it's false either way. To say there's not a self yeah. would be to fall off on one side and to say there is is to think that somehow you could pull something out of it. So this teaching is so fundamental and in some ways um, so easy to miss as we're going along. Mm -hmm. It really, really is. I'm wondering if we want to see if anybody wants to ask questions. We had this intention to, oh look, somebody. So uh, wait for (laughs) a mic. Yeah, we have a mic coming for you so that we can record it. Hi, thanks for coming and talking about practice in the wilderness. Um, I'd like to hear something about fear. Mm-hmm. And, and I would really love to hear um, if I assume there were times when perhaps you were absolutely terrified and what, what the usefulness of that was for your practice. I'm very curious about that because in the tradition you're talking about, yeah, not just an edge, but like a terrifying edge. I'm really curious mm-hmm. about that in your Thank experience. You. Thank you. That's a great question. Maybe I'll give a little answer yeah, and then you can. Please, please um, do. My experience with fear, and I could, maybe I'll first say just something general, is that um, that mostly that we're afraid of fear. That a lot of our energy goes into the afraid of the situation that is going to bring fear. And you hear people talk about this all the time, that they are in the most um, terrifying situation. You know, their car is rolling over. And I I can remember once in a car wreck, you know, going, huh, you know, and I was, I, my brakes had gone out and I was going down this steep thing and I was banging the car into the cliff on one side hoping that would slow me down. And I remember thinking, I wonder what's going to happen next. <laughs> huh, isn't this interesting? Is this going to work or am I going to go off the edge? You know? And so I think a lot of our fear is in anticipation of. That said, there's also a very deep fear in us of just sort of the fear that we're not going to live. You know, that instinctive survival level in our system. But I, my experience is I've gone through times where my whole body, um, I've had, I actually had a period of months where my whole body was in this state of fear Like I could feel it and it was fascinating. It was really amazing to feel what is this energy? What is this uh, unfamiliar in the sense of not that I hadn't come into full contact with it? And when I came into full contact with it, it's just like anything else that you were describing. Like when we no longer want to hold ourselves in the comfort zone, and if we're willing to go there, here, oh, I'll do my, I'll do one of my favorite teachings since you yeah. did yours. The um, 
We have a bandwidth that we often move through life and we're comfortable within the bandwidth. And when something goes out of our bandwidth and it's unpleasant or it's fearful or it's just unfamiliar, our first instinct is to try to fix it and get it to go back inside our bandwidth. And a huge part of what we're doing when we practice is something goes out of our bandwidth and instead of fixing it, I mean, this we do this just when we're sitting on the cushion for half an hour, you know, let alone out in the wilderness. And when something goes out of the bandwidth, it's an invitation to expand the bandwidth. Mm-hmm. If we can stay with it and discover that actually this moment is workable. I have the capacity to be with this. And when we realize that, we go, oh, okay. It doesn't mean it's pleasant. It doesn't mean we don't have preferences. But, oh, I can do that. And the bandwidth gets bigger. And we all know sometimes for people as they get older or the situation gets more comfy, their bandwidth gets smaller and smaller. And that's terrifying because as we get the bandwidth gets smaller and smaller, there's more and more that's outside. And the likelihood of our situation going outside, it becomes greater and greater. But as we expand each time we do that, it gets bigger and bigger. So how big are we aiming for it to get? Infinite. Infinite. <laughs> so everything's included. Yeah. Death and everything. Fear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I, I think of all the great uh, yogis and yoginis of, of my tradition, or the, all, all traditions, and I sometimes we think, you know, they go into caves to avoid life. But I actually think they go into caves because they're so interested in their experience. And as a practitioner, you need to be interested in the nature of your experience. So like if we're... First, actually, I want to say that there's some intelligence in fear. You know, sometimes. You know, animals have fear too. We do want to survive. That's very reasonable and noble. So I... I, But there becomes a point where I'm just surviving is not enough. That somehow... We want to find, we want to thrive and live a meaningful life, and we want to get bigger. Like you're, and when I bigger, I mean also to expand, to include or accommodate life. So if we're always rejecting unwanted experiences and grasping at things that make us comfortable, we can never have any kind of uh, uh, transformation in who we are. We'll always stay in a kind of puny and suffocating little world. And it's interesting you talked about sometimes as we get older because I just had a meeting with Joanna Macy, you know, earlier. She's almost 99. And she has tremendous amount of joy and zest and um, courage, I guess. Really wide bandwidth, let's put it that way. And I was asking her, I said, you know, you're talking about some of the most painful things that are happening, you know, environmental degradation. She went to um, Chernobyl. She's gone to these places where people are suffering terribly and encountering these uh, very uh, painful experiences, but she's full of joy. 
She says, joy can't come from avoiding pain. And I think that's really true. It's like you can't really live when you're trying to live around pain. And and I think these teachings on dependent arising have a lot to do with working with fear because we we say fear as if it's a singular thing or a permanent thing or an autonomous thing. Fear is also of the great nature of dependent arising. And the experience of fear, of course, is very paralyzing and it comes from really, you feel like you're cherishing and protecting the self. Which is why a lot of times, like on the Bodhisattva path, we serve others to move out of that contraction and that fear. That's one remedy for fear. Like, you know, we we make the vow, beings are limitless, therefore their suffering must be limitless. I vow to free them all. You know, it's kind of an interesting statement because it's a goal that's impossible to achieve. And I've thought about this a lot. Like, what does this mean? It means that we have to become limitless too, to accommodate the suffering of the world. And the bodhisattvas, you know, their biggest fear is to be to not experience the suffering of the world. That's their biggest fear, to be in their own personal state of liberation. So practitioner, the practitioner, you know, when we say, when I talk about Machik's teachings, like lean into that which repulses you or go to scary places or what have you, the, the thing is, you don't just jump off a cliff. It's you titrate slowly. You just dip your foot in and you just push at the edges of something that you're scared of because liberation is when you look at something and you see it's not what you thought it was. That's liberation. If things were really true, then enlightenment would be impossible. We'd be doomed. But the fact is, is that everything is arising and expressing itself and dissolving due to causes and conditions. So it, there's nothing kind of stuck about it. You start looking more deeply at the experience of fear or the experience of self or the experiences, you know, contraction or even the experience of joy. Like we have trouble even when we see beauty. We see something beautiful and we want to take a picture right away. Or we want to capture it, you know. Or we have as much trouble with beauty and wanting to feel good as we do with pain and suffering and fear. So, you know, we're trying to find a different relationship to suffering here. And um, we're trying to just make ourselves big enough, continuously big enough to include, like, the pain and the glory and the... You know, because life is not too complex for us or too beautiful for us or too painful for us either. You know, Joanna Macy is a really good example of that, I feel. She's interested in uh, Pema Children also. Um, She thrives on pushing at difficult experiences. This is Machik's way. That's why uh, those five slogans, you know, that I repeated uh, are so powerful. So just not in a drastic, extreme way, but just push push a little bit. Mm-hmm. Just push a little bit, I think. <laughs> in, on a very practical level, is when we, when we make this, start to make this relationship with fear, it gets to be a little signal. It's like, mm-hmm. ah, something unfamiliar and new is here. Yeah. Can I be interested in what that is? And so fear is often our first signal 
that something something is happening that yeah. could elicit this interest of this interest in us, this response. So, that was a nice short answer to a great <laughs> question. I think we're supposed to end. Yeah, we're now. supposed to end. I Maybe think. we should just see if there's oh. one more. Yeah, we can uh, one more. Question. Question. Okay. Thanks. That was so helpful. Um, so I'm really new to the teachings, and I'm just wondering on the, um, if you can speak in the same way about what suffering is, because I'm trying to understand what that means. What is suffering? Uh-huh. Because in my, you know, the black and white mind, to me, suffering is slavery and uh-huh. Holocaust, and it, how is suffering? But is it really just my child had a bad day? You know. So where is it in the, the teachings? Maybe we Good could question. each. We could. That's a huge question. That's the yeah. whole teaching. Um, but very important. Extremely yeah, very important. Very important. Okay, yeah. I'm going to see. Why don't we each see if we can do like a two sentence each answer to that? How's that for a challenge? Oh, we've, just, we've just laid down the okay. gauntlet to try to step over. Okay, yeah. I'm going to use what she already said, which is that the rigid rigidification in our mind that separates us out from the whole and makes us believe that this separate individual identity is somehow either responsible or supposed to fix the situation in order for us to be, for the situation to be more pleasurable and pleasant for us. That is the core uh, experience of suffering thinking it needs to be different than it is. And remembering always that we still act out of a compassionate heart. It doesn't mean we grind to a halt. That's one of the confu- fundamental confusions in this. Okay, I stop. I've got to stop. That was at least four You don't sentences. have to do it. Okay. <laughs> okay, yeah. you go ahead. So, so suffering in, a, you know, means dukkha. In uh, Sanskrit and in Pali, dukkha, dukkha. two, <laughs> no. um, and it's it's you know slavery is suffering. When your son is having a bad day, it's suffering. You know, it also means just feeling basically discontent and wanting more, or not feeling you have enough, or um, wishing it were different. You know, all this wanting and not wanting, and you know, suffering is so relative. I was saying today was again talking to Joanna that you know like you see a a beggar on the street of India with no arms and no you know fingers or you know no legs very sick but really joyful and then you see suffering here in 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 our country you know people are just um, you know depressed or uh, discontent just struggling in a different kind of way it's all relative you know, it's all just different kinds of suffering, but it's so interesting because, you know, you, the, the joy, like when I'm in India, I just see so much joy there, you know. So it can be a many different things, you, but it mostly here has to do with the way you understand, like um, Susie was saying, you know, how much you can include in your experience and how much grasping and rejection you have. Like someone asked my teacher, I think it was Pema Chirin, what is bliss? He said it's the absence of grasping and rejection. But again, there is suffering, you know. Here we're trying to move from I am suffering 
to understanding that there is suffering. And seeing that there is suffering, then we're, we're res- responding to that. That's our practice. Very important. Yeah. yeah. Great. I think that's a good place to, to end. Responding to responding suffering. Responding to suffering. Yes. The compassionate heart. So... Um, we're going to end and I want to encourage you um, Elizabeth has books out there if you'd like to have her sign and you'd like to have one she writes with the uh, same passion and fluidity with which she talks so it's really wonderful to read what she's written and if you're interested I think on the table on the left there's a mailing list, um, sign up if you'd like to come on a nature retreat with me. You can sign up on that. They fill really fast, so you kind of have to be on the email to know when the registration's open. And um, there's a schedule there of some of them. So I think that's totally delightful. (laughs) (laughs) Then thank you all for coming this evening. It's been wonderful. Go well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.